Welcome to the podcast to be named later, where we explore the world a conversation at a time. Sit back and enjoy. Here are your hosts, Chris and Kelly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the podcast to be named later. My co-host Chris is off today visiting Las Vegas for a little bit of NCAA March Madness and time with college buddies. In his replacement, I have someone who's a giant in the accessibility industry and an all-around nice individual, uh, fun to talk with, and looking forward to sharing some time with her. That's Lainey Feingold, who many people know um, from the web accessibility and all of her work in the law. Welcome to the podcast, Lainey. Thanks, Kelly. I'm happy to chat with you. Great. Well, Lainey, I know that you know, you've been around web accessibility for a while and things like that, but I'd like to jump back uh, way before that. And would you mind sharing a little bit about, you know, where you grew up, your childhood, and just kind of your formative years? Uh, sure. That's interesting to think of whether they were formative, but, you know, I think they were. I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, and I went to public schools there my whole life. I'm Jewish and my family was pretty active in the Jewish community and, you know, volunteers. I grew up with a, you know, my parents weren't, I wouldn't say they were progressive, but they were kind of volunteer oriented people and generous and kind and nice. And, um, yeah, so that's where I grew up with a sister and a brother. And I didn't know, people always ask, well, you must have had someone in your family who was disabled. How'd you get into this? But in fact, no, I didn't. And I went to college for two years in Massachusetts. And then the college I went to, I chose because it didn't have any grades and it didn't require SAT scores. And I was very big in those years on alternative education. So the college I went to encouraged people to take time off, which I did, and I drove out here to Berkeley, California, where I am right now recording this podcast. Um, when I was 20, drove out here in a car with two friends and never went back, except to visit, of course. Wow, really? It's true, I did. As, you know, Now that I have kids of my own, they're all grown, I'm like, Oh my goodness, I'd when be you so nervous. Did you have a plan or were you just going to visit and take country, that time off? Which I think my mother probably was. But yeah, that was, I came out here in 1976 for six months. So, and to oh, show kind of the person I was, 45 years. first of all, I always wanted to be a lawyer. And it's clear, like in my high school yearbook, people would write, you know, you'll be a great lawyer. I was planning to see stay. you in the courtroom, things like that. And I wanted to work when I came out here. I wanted to volunteer for a legal nonprofit. So I wrote letters to, this is back when I was in college in Massachusetts, and I wrote letters to women's rights organizations and the National Lawyers Guild, which is a progressive alternative to the American Bar Association and the ACLU. And I wrote these letters saying, you know, I'm a college student and can I volunteer for you when I'm in California for these six months? And it turned out that I ended up knowing some of those people I am a person who saves things, so I have those letters. And, you know, it shows me the through line through through my life, my career. And then in January, I decided I should take a course at UC Berkeley because here I was, and that was back in the day when it wasn't so hard to get into college. And I went to the admissions office and said, can I take a class? And they said, well, why don't you just enroll and finish here? So that's what I did. Wow. And what was your undergraduate area of study? I studied American history. Um, I went to Hampshire College. That was a Massachusetts college. And it was very alternative, like I said, in terms of education. And I kind of had my mind blown on a lot of American history that I wasn't aware of. And I've sort of long been a American history, American studies. It was, you know, I went to college in 1974, so the women's movement was burgeoning. I, I sort of missed the 60s, but caught the 70s. And I was the oldest in my family, so I didn't really have any older siblings to 
you know, be part of the 60s in any way. Yeah, so that was it. It's kind of interesting, Lainey, when I hear you talk about being a student of history. Um, as I've gotten older, um, you know, I've, I've come to recognize that, wow, the way that we're taught history is, there's so many things that I didn't know about um, when I was, you know, went through school that I've learned as an adult that I'm like, wow, they really don't teach us a lot of things. Well, that's been especially true in the last three or four years since Black Lives Matter and George Floyd killing. And, you know, one of my favorite things to read now are books by black academics, black historians, black novelists, because even being a history major in the 70s, so, so much that I didn't know, you know, I've read the 1619 Project and just things that were not taught. Now we're in a scary time in culture where people in certain governments and certain states don't want people to learn things. Yeah. And I think, I don't know. I, I know we, I find history fascinating, especially because, um, right. Again, as I've gotten older, you really can see, uh, and I, I don't know that there's a grand plan always, but I think, um, just, how much what you learn can shape what you think. And if that learning isn't very broad, um, I think, you know, it requires you to go further out of your way to expand your horizon. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, it's it's great, Kelly, that you asked me about, like, what you major in in college. I don't usually think about that. But, you know, fast forward to now, I do think of myself as an elder in the accessibility space. And nowadays, most places I go, I'm among a handful of the oldest people in it. So I really feel part of my role right now is to preserve our history of accessibility. And, you know, I was at CSUN, which is where I met and became friends and learned from Joseph O'Connor, who went by Accessible Joe. and. You know, most of the young people I talked to, they had never heard of him. And I was so happy that I had written about him on my website when he died. And his wife is preserving his website so you can, you know, read a lot about him. But I think we're, especially the way media is so fast now, we're really at risk of losing our history. Um, I think that uh, what you said is really salient. And I think what's really interesting to me is... Um, you know, uh, another leader in the accessibility movement, uh, Judy Human, passed away recently. And um, there's been a lot of uh, attention paid to the effort that she founded and or, or was part of, uh, you know, there in Berkeley. And sometimes I wonder if people really truly understand the level of struggle that um, people had to exert to make some of these things happen. The, the foundations of, you know, some of the legal things that we think of today, the Rehab Act, the ADA, and everything else. And really, you know, I, I was born in 1967, so I know a little bit of this, and I've seen the evolution. Um, I was fortunate um, that, you know, uh, I had a pretty, I had a pretty open childhood as far as education and stuff, but um, it just blows me away uh, things that you hear about and the struggles, um, and I think that it's important to remember that um, not 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 in the sense of you know I had to walk 15 miles uphill to school both ways, but to understand what the things you enjoy today are built on and what those foundations are. I really agree with you, especially in law people and especially, I mean, honestly, in accessibility, when we're kind of in a period where people think of it as, you know, too many people still think of it as just a legal requirement and, oh, there's some law and we have to comply with it. I like to start my legal updates when I do them with a picture of the Capitol crawl, which, as your listeners probably know, is a 
activist action leading up to passage of the ADA where people using wheelchairs left them at the bottom of the Capitol steps and crawled up to demonstrate, you know, why we needed a law that had architectural access. So these are not requirements out of nowhere. These are things that people fought for. And I think um, that's just one of the things that's always striking to me in that I'm I am very happy we are where we are, but like this didn't just happen. And you know, a few years ago, I visited Washington D.C. for the first uh, time as a tourist. I'd been there, I think, one or two times for work, but really didn't go around. And uh, just walking up things like the Capitol steps and other areas, and just thinking of those uh, foundational things that happened a, a while ago. I'd like to jump back to foundation for a minute, Lainey. And so uh, after you graduated from Berkeley, uh, you obviously went to law school. Did you go right to law school out of college or did it take some time off? Uh, it turned out that I was able to graduate just in four quarters from Berkeley. So I ended up graduating in December of 1977. And then I started law school the following September. So I had about six months off. And my boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband, and I, he also graduated at the same time. And we worked half that time, and then we went traveling half that time. And when, what law school did you go to? I went to a law school that was called Hastings College of the Law until about a month ago when they changed the name to University of California San Francisco Lawsuit, uh, sorry, Law School, University of California San Francisco Law School. It was a public law school named after a guy who was a bad actor. And so they changed the name of the school just effective. Well, I guess it was January 2023. Right. It's right in downtown San Francisco. Lainey, you said that when you were growing up, you knew you wanted to be a lawyer and talked about your high school yearbook. When you got into law school itself, did you have an idea of what type of lawyer you wanted to be? Very soon after I started, I focused in on being a union side labor lawyer. And that is what I wanted to do. I had jobs throughout law school working for union side labor firms. We had a group called the Women's Labor Project, which was women law students, some had graduated recently, who were, we were all interested in representing labor unions and in particular, you know, making sure women's rights were protected in the workplace. And we actually wrote a book called Bargaining for Equality. And when I got out, I couldn't get a job in a private labor firm, but I went to work for the state uh, public employee relations board, kind of like the NLRB for public employees in California. And how was that? Did that start to fulfill your dreams of what you thought you wanted to do? Uh, yeah, well, I wasn't so thrilled about working for the state agency. I lived in Berkeley and they were in Sacramento. It was a pretty oh, long boy. commute and I had a little apartment I share with people up there. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was good. It was the start of being a lawyer. And um, after about a year and a half, I did get a job with a union side labor firm. And I did that for about five years. And then kind of woke up one day and wasn't all that satisfied with the work. So then I switched to a traditional civil rights firm doing race and gender discrimination lawsuits. And then cliffhanger, I got fired from that firm, which, you know, turned out to be the best thing ever happened to me because then I fell into disability rights. How, so how did you go from, I mean, obviously there's some similarities, but how did you go from, uh, you know, civil rights law firm to getting fired to disability? Uh, like what led you there versus something else? luck, I would say good fortune. Um, you know, I am in Berkeley. And as you mentioned, it is considered the birthplace of the disability rights movement. And 
there's a legal organization here called DREDF, the Disability Rights Education Defense Fund, one of the first, if not the first, disability rights legal nonprofits. And they had a four month opening while someone was on sabbatical. And, you know, I needed a job. I have, I had two kids at the time and my husband, and you know, we had a house. And so I took that four month job at DREDF. And while there, I, I think I, it's fair to say I met my first blind person who was Harry Cordellos. I don't know if you ever ran into him. He was a marathon runner and we did a lawsuit against the city of San Francisco transit agency for not announcing stops. So blind hey, was Harry into bowling? Was. He could have been. He was really a sports guy. There was, was big... I lived in San Francisco for a little while at my life, and there was a guy named Harry. I don't remember his last name, but he like organized some blind bowling league in San Francisco. Might have been him, might not. Well, he taught me a good lesson, which I sometimes refer back to and sometimes quote. We were riding the buses, you know, to gather evidence. Were the bus drivers calling the stops? Because it was before it was all automatic. And Harry said to me, Laney, you have to stop thinking of blind people as sighted people with a paper bag over their head. And, you know, it was just the first of, well, that was in 1992, two years after the ADA passed. So that's like 30 plus years of learning from friends and colleagues and clients about what it means to be blind and what is access and what are civil rights. And yeah, that's how it started. It's kind of funny that you talk about announcing bus stops. I was living, I lived in Madison, Wisconsin at the time. And um, that was one of my big things here uh, was Trump working, you know, advocating for the city to get the drivers to announce stops. And because uh, it's a real drag if you get let off on the wrong stop in the middle of winter. Um, yeah, you, you know, you got to walk further in the cold and stuff. But uh, I still have uh, over in a folder, it's probably an inch thick of uh, like complaints I had filed with the city transit agency. Didn't have a lawyer to help me or anything, but um, it's interesting. And I wonder how many cities had people trying to to do that and advocate for the uh, announcing of bus stops and things like that. I'm sure everywhere because it was frustrating. We also had a big, you know, file folder and um, we ended up getting a settlement. And during that time, um, that was when a couple blind people called DREDF, the nonprofit I was working for, and asked about whether we thought the ADA, which was brand new, could be used to get talking ATMs. And that's how I started my digital journey my journey into digital equity, digital rights. You know, and the talking ATM one is really um, interesting to me because really, I won't say everywhere, um, but it sh they sure became ubiquitous over, over the time. And it is one of those things that, yes, I know you had to bring a pair of headphones and, um, but wow, it was, it was, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it was just nice to be able to go anywhere and pretty much know that you'd be able to use an ATM. Yeah. I mean, it was really, it was just a wonderful initiative. Um, so I was working at the nonprofit, which had expanded from that four month sabbatical. I ended up staying four years there and that's when the talking ATM work really started we had a great group of blind customers. We wrote letters to Wells Fargo, Citibank, and Bank America and said, you know, the ATMs don't work for blind people, but rather than sue you, can we sit down and talk about it? Which morphed into the first structured negotiation before that had a name. And it just really showed me the power of relationships. I found an email recently that one of the bankers wrote when they left the job at the bank and it was like, this has been the highlight of my career because they had never gotten to meet any blind customers. And when they did and saw that people couldn't take their own money out of their own account without sharing their pin with a stranger, 
it was like light bulbs going off. I mean, you could practically see it in these meetings that we had. So, yeah. And then towards the end of that, um, a couple of our clients, one is Roger Peterson. I don't know. Do you know Roger, Kelly? Um, he worked at Telecentra, I think, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. He's He had such a nice guy. And he had this, I don't even know what to call it, but this kind of jerry-rigged system that he would communicate with his bank and he'd dial a number and it would go to a modem and he'd get the information back and it would print out in Braille. So he was really an early technology adopter and he's one of a few people that came to us while we were working with the banks on the ATM that said, you know, Lainey, there's going to be this new thing, online banking, and we better make that accessible or else, you know, we're back to square one. And that's how I got involved in the whole world of web accessibility, just because the blind, you know, we had a process, a system where we could really listen to blind people and learn from them and share their expertise with the companies, unlike a typical lawsuit where the person doesn't really have a chance to show their expertise. So I'm sure that you've answered this next question uh, countless times, but I guess I'll make it countless plus one. Um, you talked about structured negotiation, and obviously that's something that's you know very, very closely attached to your name, and um, you've had some excellent results with it. Um, could you give us a little bit of a definition of you know like what that means and the process and just uh, put some uh, substance behind those terms? Yes. The first thing I'll say is after those first bank cases, uh, we went to Bank America with Roger Peterson's wisdom and said, we better work on your website. And because we had a relationship with them and we weren't in a court where a judge had to give a stamp of approval, the bank said yes. And we got the first web agreement in the country in 2000. And after that, we said, was that just luck that we got the talking ATMs and the accessible website? We also did Braille bank statements. Or was it a thing that we could replicate? And we decided to try and see if it's something we could replicate. And in part of that, we had to give it a name. So had I known, fast forward, it would work. In other contexts, I would write a book about it. I didn't know all that, so it has a clunky name of structured negotiation, um, which we name that way to mean this isn't just a casual request. Oh, we need an accessible website. Will you chat with us about it? But rather, there was a structure because these were real legal claims and we wanted the same results as if we had filed the lawsuit without the fighting, without the contention, without the cost, and with the opportunity to build relationships. So structured negotiation, the first part of the structure is everyone getting on the same page to be collaborative because you have to have a mindset that you're willing, I know you know this, Kelly, that you're willing to work together, which requires a lot of patience. and requires a certain attitude of cooperation. And instead of filing a complaint in a court, we write a letter, which sometimes I call a letter, invitation letter. We explain the problem. We say that it's a legal violation, but we don't hit it with a hammer at the beginning. We start with a story of, you have a blind customer or a blind employee or, you know, a deaf, I my work is all, been with blind people, but other people have used the process with people with other disabilities or even outside the disability world. And you explain the story of the impact of the legal violation and try to get a dialogue going. And from then on, is you do it in a certain way, and that's why I wrote the book. And it's all about curiosity, bridging understanding, and creating sustainable change, not just, you know, give us some money or sign an agreement and then we'll walk away, but really how do we make this stuff accessible so it's going to stick? And, you know, 
I'm not saying it always works, but that's the that's the goal. I'd like to come back to accessibility, but um, I just want to jump forward to um, get your impression um, because you've done something that not a lot of us have done. I mean, you wrote a book. What what uh, what was that process like? What you got again? What started you on that part of your journey? What was that like, uh, you know, just the whole from, hey, I know all this stuff, to I'm going to put it into a book, and now here's my book. Could you talk a little bit about that? It was hard. I, if, if this is the last thing I could say, I could say it's very hard. It was hard for me to write a book. It took me about five years. Um, one of the secrets, I think, to being an author of a book is having confidence and I knew this was a process that worked. And I also believe in lawsuits. You know, I never wanted to be the poster child for anybody saying, oh, lawsuits aren't good. So I had to be extremely careful in what I wrote. Um, I interviewed almost all the people I had worked with in the blind community. I interviewed as many of the company lawyers, the nonprofit, and the company lawyers, the government lawyers who had worked on the other side, the so-called other side. I like to say structured negotiation creates a round table, but, you know, and I had all that information and I wrote a book that was really story based. The American Bar Association published the first edition in 2016. I turned it in and the editor who was kind of my champion, who really encouraged me to write this book, he was like, you have to do it all over again <laughs> because he thought the most useful thing would be to share the stories in the context of explaining how the process works. So rather than have the stories organized around talking ATMs, talking prescription labels, accessible pedestrian signals, all the issues we worked on, websites, mobile app. He thought it would be better, and I ended up agreeing with him, to say, you know, first we write a letter. And when we write a letter, just one little example, in a lawsuit, you never want to say anything nice about the person you're suing. But if you want a relationship with someone to make changes, it's a good idea to try to find something nice to say about the company or the organization. So in the chapter where I wrote about how to write the opening letter, I had examples from all the different stories, like a financial company we worked with has a reputation for being very generous financially to disability organizations. Usually you'd shy away from that in a lawsuit, but in our letter we could say, you know, you're very generous to organizations or retail companies who provide good customer service, yet have terrible technology, we could say, you know, you have great customer service and your need for accessible technology is just a further, further down the path of where you already are, you know, to try to get companies to see that what we're asking for is not that different than how they see themselves. So that was the book process. And the American Bar, I appreciate the American Bar Association for publishing it. They charged too much for the book. I think they were used to all their books were going to be sold to lawyers with a lot of money. But my book, one of the reasons it took so long is I really wanted it to be for everyone in the community, for accessibility people, for tech people. For So they charged too much. So when the kind of print run ran out and it was time for a second edition, I self-published that in 2021. I could cut the price in half, so I was happy. Uh, you're always opening up new doors, Lainey. Um, what was that process like for, of, of self-publishing? What did you learn from that? And uh, how did that differ from working with a traditional publisher? Okay, let me just say, first of all, I've said, that, I've said this before, it shouldn't be called self-publishing. Could I, I could never have done it myself. One of the things I love about the accessibility community is how generous people are with sharing what they know and who they know. So I knew I wanted to have the digital version of my book be accessible, of course. And I called one person, then I called another person, and 
That all led me to Laura Brady, who is an accessible book expert in Canada. This is what she does for a living. And she, I don't want to say saved my life, but she made it possible for me to self-publish the book. Because not only did she make a fully accessible digital version, but she, what she called, aired out the print version. I got a new cover. I had a, you know, a new, I hired someone to make the cover design. It kind of matches my website. I got new quotes for the cover. And it looks so much better, I have to say. And Laura also knew how to navigate the whole online publishing thing. So it's available on Amazon, but I didn't want it only to be available on Amazon. So it's available everywhere where digital books are sold. And in certain bookstores, you can get it. They have arrangements so you can get the paper copy. And Kelly, I'm here to tell you it's print on demand, which sounds so like cheesy, but the book looks really good. The, the colors, uh, the page color is nice. It's easy to read. The spacing is good. So, so yeah, I had, it wasn't self. I had Laura Brady do all that work and my web developer helped me with the new web page about the book. And I wrote about 50 new pages of content. I interviewed more people who I hadn't known when I wrote the first edition. I had two forwards, Hob and Gurma, who I'm sure your audience all knows. She wrote me a forward to the book. The book is trying to get translated into Spanish. That's been an ongoing project. And so one of the women in Spain wrote a forward. And yeah, and then I put in a lot. I, well, let me say one other thing is the book is called Structured Negotiation, A Winning Alternative to Lawsuits, because that's how I've used it as an alternative. But right in the second edition and talking to lawyers, I heard stories where people filed the lawsuit, but then pivoted to structured negotiation to make it easier to collaborate within the lawsuit. That was one thing. And then I heard from non-lawyers without legal claims Somebody, Josh Kim, who's a, a web designer, uh, Sassy Outwater, who's executive director of a nonprofit, who said they are using the stories in the book to help them with their advocacy separate from a legal claim. So I didn't change the title. It's still a winning alternative to lawsuits. But in writing the second edition, I learned a lot about how people were using the, the strategy. Has... Um... You talked about the American Bar Association, you know, being involved with the first edition. To your knowledge, and I, I honestly don't know the answer to this question, but I'm curious, has the concept of structured negotiation filtered into legal education or anything like that? You know, I did a lot of, um, for, let's see. Well, structured negotiation is an example of collaborative law. Collaborative law is usually the term they use when this kind of non-adversarial relationship building strategy is used in family law, divorces, things like that. Um, and almost every type of law has this kind of thing with different types of names, um, contract law, environmental law. And there is a global community run by a woman named Kim Wright sort of collecting all of us to say there's a lot of different ways to practice law. I got a really nice email from a law professor I had met and she, just two weeks ago, and she had asked her students to do a reflection on what they thought of her negotiation class. And one of her students wrote, before I started law school, I read a book called Structured Negotiation, A Winning Alternative to Lawsuits. And she said, that book gave me hope and confidence that there would be a place in law for someone like me. Oh, so meaningful. And the law professor asked her permission. Could she send it to me? And she did. And now I've corresponded with this young woman. And we're going to, you know, we're in the process of setting up a call. But so I wouldn't exactly say it's filtered into, but I've spoken at a lot of law schools and I've spoken with a lot of law students and 
yeah, it's hard to kind of break into to that because I'm not a law school academic. But I feel like I'm doing what I can to get the word out there. I'll leave it at that. Oh, that's great. I'm curious, Lainey, um, obviously, uh, structured negotiation in your process, you know, has had some great successes. Um, it requires a, a lot of st- commitment. Um, and I guess I, you may not be able to answer this question, but I'll just say it this way. And, uh, you know, um, why is it still in 2023? And I guess we could say this for more than just accessibility, but it sure seems like it's still too much of a struggle too often to get equality. You know, when I first started in this field, I used to say, my goal is to put myself out of business. And I think I maybe thought that could happen. That, you know, we just spread the word and people would understand. And, you know, the effort today, the number of people in accessibility, the fact that the top you called it accessibility industry, which it now is. And, you know, when I started, you never saw corporate accessibility people. You never saw you know, leadership like we have in a lot of big companies now. But it's still too hard. It's still too hard. I mean, just last month, I joined the board of Teach Access, which, for your listeners who don't know, is a nonprofit whose goal and mission is to get accessibility education into the hands of students, primarily higher ed students. there definitely, People's, I mean, there has been, a, again, talked about Know Your History. Um, I mean, my first job out of college was with a small organization uh, created by a gentleman by the name of Dr. Greg Vanderheiden, and uh, we, <laughs> we, we had a product that, uh, you know, was called Access DOS, uh, and then the Access Pack for Windows as examples, and some of the, as, as you know, I worked at Microsoft for a long time, and some of those accessibility settings that are in Windows, like sticky keys and all that, I always had to chuckle when people talked about them because I'm like, yeah, I, I was around and worked on this stuff when it was, you know, a third-party product that, um, uh, you know, that wasn't built into the operating system. Um, and so there is that history. Yeah, and I, I do think we've made tremendous progress. It's just, it's not enough. You know, this, it's not you know, and I think both things can be true. Um, and I think they're both true along a lot of uh, efforts. But we we can acknowledge the progress, um, but still say, you know, it's not enough. I mean, again, anybody could cite examples of both. I think about just this week... Um, you know, I mean, I was doing some uh, financial transactions with some accounts in, in one place. You know, they had a, a website um, where they're like, okay, you have to sign this document, so go draw your signature, you know, eat, uh, let alone I couldn't get, you know, keyboard focus into the box. Well, what alternatives do I have? And this was a major company. I won't mention the name here, but they're like, well, have somebody who can see help you. Um, you know, uh, another place, they had a, a similar challenge, but they're like, oh, well, that's not going to work for you. You know what? We can go and create a DocuSign document, and you can sign the stuff that way. So in one regard, you know, and then I think back to when I bought my first house um, and signed two inches of paper that I couldn't read at all, you know. Um, yeah, so yeah. Yeah. I, and I know I tend to be a little bit outspoken sometimes about accessibility because I'm, I'm passionate about it in the sense of it just, I grew up in a really big family. Uh, my parents had 11 children. Um, and one, one thing that we were all raised with was, um, 
you know, don't expect more than your share, but don't expect less. And that's really always been kind of my guiding philosophy on accessibility is, you know, I don't want I don't want all the special, but I, I don't want to be um, shortchanged either. Yeah, I like that. Don't expect more, don't expect less. You know. Yeah, well, I mean, some of the difference, like you just described with those two financial institutions, some of that is culture and the limits of the law is that they, the law can't instill culture. You know, it could be a jumping off point. It could be a floor, but, you know, how do you get it? So the frontline person knows to say, oh, sure, I understand you're a blind person. You can't do this. Here's the alternative. Do that. Available at the same time, available independently, available with privacy. So, I mean, is that training? Is that... What what is the secret sauce of that? And that's what we have to be going for. And and, and I think it is a a, a complicated uh, topic at some level. I don't want to make it so, sound like it's just super simple. Um, but so I think some of it is also um, a philosophy in that you know some people would say. And whether it's law or something else, you know, I think some people would say the law is tells you exactly what you can or have to do. Other people would say the law is a guide that tells you when you're coming to the edge. So you can do anything, anything you want out, out, uh, as long as it doesn't cross these lines. And I think that sometimes the reactions we see um, to accessibility are a reflection of those two attitudes, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's interesting. I think that one problem we have right now is we don't have enough. We don't have enough. I mean, people want more specificity than right now the law is offering. Although, on the other hand, the law is saying don't exclude disabled people. What more do you need to know? You know, that's been part of the ADA for the last 33 years, almost 33 years. So I think that's our strongest, our strongest legal argument, but it would be nice for people to be able to turn to a regulation. Like Chancy Fleet, who's a blind activist, she says, we got to get accessibility code not the whole process but just the code like the plumbing code you know if you hire a licensed plumber they're going to meet the code they know it they learn it they do it i yeah i mean well, right i mean you go hiring anybody to do something on your house um I, I thought about this and um i guess i'll do a little cross promotion um, as you know, in some of my podcast listeners know, I also have a, a blog that I write some things on. And I, th I wrote about this whole thing a little bit not too long ago, uh, something that I called ethical accessibility. Um, and really, I think some of this comes into play because, you know, what are the behaviors that we would expect and things like that? And what knowledge and what assumptions can we make about everything in the industry and because you're mentioning of a plumber right i mean generally speaking when you go hire a plumber you don't know you you expect that the plumber through licensure education and everything else is going you just assume they're going to have the requisite skills and knowledge to do the job it, you know you're not you're not asking to see the license necessarily well hopefully you're Making sure they they're licensed and have nothing bad, you know, against them in a enforcement. But you know, you're assuming they know the rules, and I think the challenge right. we have in accessibility sometimes is um, there's it, those assumptions are much less certain. There are a lot more people 
in accessibility jobs, which is really good. And LinkedIn right now, I think, is doing a great job of allowing people to put in their job descriptions or their what they're looking for. Accessibility is getting to be a standard thing. And there are a lot of people who say they can do accessibility and they really can't. So it, we just the education, the training is just very, very crucial because we can't make the assumption we can make, I agree with you, we can't make the assumption we can make when we hire a plumber. Um, especially smaller, you know, smaller companies or individuals who want a website. And I mean, I, people call me all the time, even not, even progressive nonprofits, like, well, our developer says he can learn accessibility or he asked me what standard he should use. I'm thinking, don't hire this developer because if he's asking those kinds of questions, just assuming he's going to do it, he's probably not going to get it right. Well, it's funny that you had mentioned that, Lainey, and you, again, I, I'm curious if, if you're comfortable answering a question like this, because, um, or just your reaction. This is something I think about a lot. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play out this scenario. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a restaurant owner, okay? I, I have, I've had family members that own restaurants, um, so I, let me tell you, that's a pretty tough business to be in. Um, now I go down to, you know, my local web design shop and I say, Hey, I need a website, you know, and I need to get my menu online. Uh, you know, half of the time, what the website developer does is, Hey, they throw up a, a picture of the menu, right? Um, yes. which clearly isn't accessible. Now the website for the restaurant isn't accessible. I mean, the key piece of information. But now here, here's the thing I wonder about sometimes. What, you know, what expectation should I have of the restaurant owner to even conceptually understand this or know about it? And I'm of, this, this is where it's a little bit complicated at times because sometimes I have two minds. On one hand, I'm like, well, if that was food safety, you'd be held accountable for those regulations. Um, you know what I mean? Or yeah. a, a labor law. So um, should you be held accountable for this accessibility law, you know, if you're going to run the business? But, and then I say, well, if we're going to do that, where are these people supposed to learn this? Like, if I have never heard of web accessibility and I run a restaurant, where would I know to ask those questions? And where would I get the answers? And we're talking about, you know, when you're outside of the accessibility ecosystem, if you will, you know, I, I just like to cook and I just run my little local cafe down here down the street. So I don't know. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts or reactions to that whole scenario? You know, it's interesting. Yeah, well, uh, it's reminding me of the overlays, which, as I'm sure your listeners know, are one line of code that claim to make websites accessible when, in fact, they do not. And I typically say that I don't really blame the site owners who are licensing the overlay software. I blame the overlay companies for... And I blame their investors because many of them are heavily venture funded for advertising and putting out a product that doesn't work as advertised. I usually say I don't blame the site owner because when you, I mean, I had a conversation with a reputable national nonprofit not too long ago who asked me like, well, how do you, how do we know which consultants are good and which aren't thinking of the overlay companies as consultants, but you're asking a different question. So they'd be legally responsible. Should the restaurant owner be legally responsible? And the way the ADA is structured, if you're owning a business open to the public, you have to make it accessible. 
So that's where the whole education piece comes in. There's also a law that was, uh, legislation was introduced last fall that I'm not sure if it's been reintroduced in the new Congress, but to expand the ADA and digital so it would cover directly the website developers, not just the public facing organization. I think I think that, um, and this is where, you know, I think the industry and everybody for this to be successful, um, just and to really resolve um, like my scenario, um, there, there, everybody that throughout this whole industry needs to provide better tooling, education, and awareness. And I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about people that I know that own restaurants. If, if, if they didn't know me, I guarantee you they would not, in the resources that are readily available to them in their towns. The small little web design shops, like they don't; those shops do not know accessibility. Yeah, no, I know, and you don't have to step too far out of our little ecosystem to encounter people who don't know. That's what's kind of scary. You know, you don't have to go to the far reaches. We have. Like I say, we have disability rights nonprofits. We have other progressive nonprofits, small businesses who just, they don't know. Or because, you know, there's a lot to unpack here, but because many people see accessibility just through the lens of, uh-oh, I'll get a lawsuit, I'm afraid, they don't really think that it means including customers, making it easy for people to buy their products and that's where we run into trouble when they people look for a quick fix or even if they know accessibility they're not they don't want to invest in it because they don't see a value they see it only as a response to some law that they don't understand so we have a i guess kelly the bottom line is as you and i know we have a lot of work still left to do a lot of well, Lainey, you you've you've done a lot of work and you may not be able to answer this and uh, maybe that's maybe it's all of them but um, I'm really curious from all the different successes you've had, um, you know, you're out just reflecting on your career. Is, is there an experience that, you know, just instantly could be small, big, just brings a smile to your face of, wow, that, that just was so rewarding. Uh, well, the rewarding thing for me is the relationships, you know, like a relationship with you and with so many blind people who, you know, appreciate, appreciate the work and recognize the work that went into doing the work. Um, talking about restaurants reminds me that we did a structured negotiation with Denny's about this very issue. They had nutrition information on their website and it was just a picture and there's been so many learnings for me throughout and the denny's thing was the learn you know my sort of i started dealing with financial accessibility so the privacy issues there are so clear like you have to give your pin to get your own money working on accessible prescription information privacy issues so clear like having to share private health information just because it's not accessible healthcare websites but i don't know if it's a smile or just an aha moment of all the kinds of cases i worked on that just really drove home for me that it's all privacy it's all independence the woman who came to she actually came to jim thatcher who has since passed a just a great friend of mine and a wonderful accessibility champion because she couldn't get the nutrition information. Like that was important to her health. And when I first called the Denny's lawyer who ended up being a great partner and we settled, he was like, oh, our website, we just like give it to an advertising agency. Like they didn't think about it as an inclusion issue. 
But when I was able to introduce this woman's story, they were like, oh yeah, we should fix that. And same with, you know, when I did worked on Major League Baseball accessibility. At first I was like, well, is that important? You know, it's not healthcare, it's not pedestrian safety, it's not financial safety. But Kelly, I think of all the things I've done, the Major League Baseball work has been the most, I don't want to say applauded, but you know, a lot of blind people, like a lot of sighted people, want to have independent access to baseball information want to listen to the games with the home announcer. So it's just been a wonderful, I, I can't believe how lucky I got getting fired from that job. We'll just leave it at that. Well, that's great. And, you know, I know, look, I know in, in life, everybody's always trying to prioritize things. And I get that and things like that. But my overarching philosophy is, I don't want to be the gatekeeper of whatever it is. You know, if what you really want to do is, read about the latest, you know, uh, whatever, pop music trends. If that's what, if that's what you enjoy, um, I, like I said, don't expect more, don't expect less. And that, that's really, uh, I don't want to be, I don't, I don't think people in the accessibility business should be the gatekeeper of which things are more important. Exactly. That's what I learned when I think about baseball. Even the pedestrian signals, when we got involved with negotiating with San Francisco about accessible pedestrian signals, I wasn't sure this process would work with a city or work with accessible pedestrian signals. And, you know, something that makes me smile on that is that still today, you can go to the city of San Francisco's website and they have the same, you know, we had very intense policies and procedures and how do you request them and you know an APS isn't just buy it off the shelf and put it on the street we had blind people involved in the process who had tremendous expertise Jean Lozano Anita Aaron other people and I can still see that today 15 years later on the San Francisco website so yeah it brings a smile when things are sustained I can honestly say that they're not always. Sometimes we have to go back and do it again. But yeah, I feel very, very lucky that I fell into accessibility. Well, it's quite a, a journey, Lainey, from Massachusetts to Berkeley and all the things uh, that you've accomplished and will still accomplish. Before I let you go, Lainey, I always like to ask, you know, whether it's a podcast, I, I know when I used to do job interviews, one of my favorite questions was always something around this, and I, I like to toss it into some of my podcast guests as well, right? So I know I reached out to you and asked you to come on my podcast, and, you know, maybe at some point in your mind, you're like, oh, that'll, you know, maybe it'll be interesting, maybe it won't, but wow, I sure hope Kelly asks me about this because I really want to get this out there into the universe. Uh, I know we didn't cover everything we could have covered, but Lainey, is there something that you'd like to add uh, before we uh, close our conversation that I haven't asked you about? I think you did a very good job, Kelly. I've been on a lot of podcasts, and I like how you pulled out some through lines that I hadn't really focused on you know, back to high school or, um, yeah, I'll just, you know, I did a talk and I'll just throw this out to your audience. Um, my web, you can reach me through my website, which is lflegal.com. And they were asking me, I did a, I did a keynote, then I did a fireside chat and the fireside chat question. The first one was like, well, you did this, that, or the other thing, what's next? And I said to this audience, most of whom were, you know, younger than my kids, what do you think is next? Like that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to figure out at this stage of the career. And I feel like I have certain experiences. I feel parts of them can be useful to advancing accessibility and it's not really something you should have asked me, but it's more like what I'm thinking about right now is how best to 
just how best to use all this, all the know-how and all the know-who that I've accumulated over all these years. You know, I'll be 67 on Sunday and I'm very lucky to be healthy and active and I have no plans of stopping and, you know, there's got to be an end at some point. So that's what I'm like. I don't want to say struggling, but that's what I think about. That's what I think about when people ask me to do something. Am I going to say yes to that? Or am I going to say no to it? And why? And sort of what's my goal for this stage? I don't feel I have to prove anything anymore. It's more what is kind of the best use of of all of this at this point. Well, that's great. Let, let me wish you happy birthday in advance. And Lainey, I have to ask you one more question because if I don't, I'll regret it because it's something I've always wondered about ever since I first started looking at your website. Um, because if, if there's other examples of it out there, I've not experienced them. Um, there is a, a web accessibility criteria that talks about, um, uh, you know, I might get the exact terms wrong, but the simplified summary. How, tell me how you can, I mean, you have that frequently. What's that process and how did you start doing that? And just, could you talk about that a little bit? I love talking about that and I will. So I got my website, first website in 2008, which was the year WCAG 2.0 came out. And in order, the way the web content accessibility guideline process works is that for the new guidelines, they have to have at least two websites for every level to show that the guidelines will work and are achievable. So two for level A, two for double A, two for triple A. So I have a very simple site and they asked me, would I be willing to have it be the triple A site in the implementation report? Part of that was that I had to do these simplified summaries for all my posts, which means I had to summarize the content at a ninth grade reading level. So I used to have the simplified summary at the bottom. And at the top, I'd say, this web page has a simplified summary for section blah, 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 I don't even remember what it is, of the web content accessibility guidelines. And then you jump to the bottom, you could jump back to the top. And honestly, I felt, who's looking at this? This is one of these like requirements that nobody cares about. So I put it on Twitter at some point to say, does anybody care about this? And some, many people, one of whom was Jamie Knight, who's in London and is a, is autistic and a accessibility leader. I've learned so much from him. He's like, I love the summaries because they tell me whether I should want to read the whole article or not. And I think I started in 08, but now in 2023, the web is more like that. People want it short. People want it quick. People want to know if they should dive in. So I did the refresh and I've done a couple refreshes, but the most recent one, I put the summary on the top. I took out the reference to WCAG because who cares about that? It's just something people want. And I don't call it a simplified summary because maybe that has connotations. I just integrated it and it says on this page and there it is so i want to give a shout out to my developer named natalie mcleese who's just phenomenal she has a company called digit it's digitally it sounds like digit a level y but i think it's a l y but her name is natalie mcleese and she did that for me and i get so many compliments on that people have no idea it's a it's a WCAG requirement well, Long answer to your short no, question. No, that's great because, <laughs> you know, and we didn't plan it, Lenny, but really that's, you know, what we want. We want accessibility to be there. And just it, the other thing I like to say is, you know, you know when something's really accessible when it just works for somebody. Absolutely. And people often, lawyers tell me, oh, I really like your website. And I'm like, this is what it means to have an accessible website. It's easy to navigate and 
So anyways, WCAG 2.2 is going to come out next month, hopefully. And again, my site will be in the implementation report for the third time. It was in again in 2018 for 2.1. Um, so yeah, I'm happy to do it to showcase that, yeah, lawyers, lawyers don't know from accessible websites. So I'm glad I have the opportunity to do it, and I'm glad people like those summaries. And I'm sure AI and chat GPT can now write them for me. I haven't tried that. I, I don't know. That. That's a whole different podcast. That's a different podcast. <laughs> Kelly, you're great. Thank you for um, inviting me. Lainey, I want to thank you immensely for spending time with me. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I've learned a lot, and uh, just thanks to you and i hope again i want to wish you a happy birthday and to all of our listeners of the podcast to be named later thanks for listening to another episode thank you